The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. R. Scott Clark. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are pleased uh, to come before you, uh, your face, in the name of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and our high priest. Our hearts are full of joy knowing that we come before you not as strangers, but as uh, sons adopted for the sake of your eternally begotten Son, our Lord Jesus. And we bless you and praise you for your great mercy to us and your grace that favor which Jesus earned for us and which you have shown to us, which we continue to receive even now. Be with us as we meditate on your word, encourage us, strengthen us, equip us, O Lord, to serve for your glory and the upbuilding of your church. Hear our prayer, forgive our sins, and work in us by your spirit, where we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn to Job 38. I want to look at two passages in Job, 38, 1 through 7, and then 42, 1 through 6. In the time that we have, that's, it will be good if we can hit all of that. And I want to meditate with you on, God, on Yahweh's righteous wisdom, on Yahweh's righteous wisdom from Job 38, uh, first of all, 1 through uh, 7, and then 42, 1 through 6. Uh, reading from the ESV, 30, uh, beginning in verse uh, 1, chapter 38, Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens, uh, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you, and, uh, you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Then over to 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you Make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless this word to our hearing and, and understanding and give us grace to believe all that he has said. Uh, brothers and sisters, there is scarcely a, a more difficult problem in all of the Christian faith than the problem of evil. I was just dialoguing with a fellow who's struggling with the uh, problem of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
Um, he's in a mainline uh, Methodist denomination. He identifies as a remonstrant, but he was sort of exploring the other side, and, and we ended up, as these discussions often do, it was a cordial discussion, it was a friendly discussion, and we ended up um, talking about the problem of evil. How, how is it that God can be absolutely sovereign and yet not responsible for evil? If God is absolutely sovereign over all things, if he's decreed all things, if all things are comprehended in his providence, and who, who could say otherwise? How can you say anything else, really, in the face of the testimony of Holy Scripture? In the beginning, God, right? We're not Manichaeans. Moses is not a Manichaean. Moses doesn't say, well, in the beginning, God, and here's one principle, here's a good principle, and in the beginning, evil, here's another competing principle, and we'll see how this cosmic struggle turns out. That's not what the Word of God says. If, the, if, the, if there were no problem of evil, of course, the book of Job wouldn't exist. Romans 9 would read rather differently than it does. Romans 9 is very clear that there is a, a, we existentially experience a great problem. If people do what God has decreed from all eternity, how can he hold them morally culpable, to paraphrase Paul? And, of course, Paul gives us this wonderful, if not entirely intellectually satisfying, reply. Who are you, O man? Cannot the uh, potter say to the clay, or make of the clay what he will? And, of course, the expected answer is yes. Potters can do whatever they want with clay. Now, that is... You, you must know, understand this, that is modern heresy. There's perhaps no greater heresy uh, that you can utter in the modern world than to say that human beings are not absolutely ultimate relative to all other authorities. That, that is, it goes to the heart of the modern creed, modern with a capital N, or modernist. Right, what do modern people believe? What have modern enlightened people believe since the beginning of the middle of the 17th century through the 18th, 19th, and, and, and to today? We believed in uh, human perfectibility, uh, essential human goodness, and uh, the ability of human beings to will the contrary to God. Just to give you a set of uh, some parameters in which to think, even Pelagius, that great heretic, declared a heretic by the Council of Ephesus in 431, right, his doctrines, they named Coelestius, but they were aiming at Pelagius, Pelagius has declared a heretic against the Catholic faith. Even Pelagius didn't think that we had the ability to will the contrary to God. It is a remarkably modern paganism that has overtaken the West, where human beings declare the ability to will the contrary to God. And Job puts us face to face then with this problem in, in a world in which it's inconceivable that human beings have the ability to will the contrary to God, which actually intensifies the problem of evil. Does it relieve it? Well, I want you to feel the weight of this problem. I mean, you know, so if we go back to Job uh, 1, you go back to the very beginning, I think people sometimes un, you know, incorrectly uh, make some of this language absolute. I mean, Job was not without sin. There aren't, there's nobody like that. But he, uh, it says in, in 1.1, there was a man in the land of uh, Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Well, of course, we know these are not absolute statements, but relatively. One who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet, what transpires, and if you go on and read the rest of the chapter, you see that Yahweh essentially taunts Satan 
And uh, Satan says, well, of course Job is upright. Everything's going well for him. Let, but let me add him and we'll see how upright he remains. And Yahweh permits this. Not bare permission, but, but a, 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 a permission of a sort. It's, uh, it's in the scriptures. And so uh, finally, after all of Job's re, you know, terrible travails, he finally shakes his fist at God, as we'll see in chapter 31, uh, and says, well, all right, Yahweh, uh, I've had enough. Uh, I have, and he makes this plea through chapter 31, right, having been abused by his counselors, whom Yahweh says were wrong. His counselors were wrong, so if you want to learn what not to say to people who are suffering, Read Job's counselors, and then don't do that. El, uh, Elihu, or, uh, I think, is, a, is an ambiguous case. E.J. Young says, well, he was right, but it's immaterial. Strikes me as an odd thing to say. He was, he, Elihu was right, but it's, his being right was immaterial. Well, maybe from a pastoral point of view, it's not always helpful when you're ministering to people who are suffering to sit there and say true things. Sometimes they just need you to sit there and be with them, right, in the midst of their suffering. You have to resist that temptation to unload all the wisdom that you've gained in your first semester of seminary while people are suffering. But nevertheless, uh, uh, Job uh, raises his fist finally in chapter 31, and then Elihu, uh, you know, uh, um, unloads on Job and makes people uncomfortable, but if you read Elihu, he, he basically says the same thing that Yahweh says in chapter 38. And so I think here Meredith Klein is right, that Elihu is essentially a prologue to, to Yahweh. And so Yahweh answers Job out of the storm. The whirlwind is a possible translation. It's, it's one of the translations that is used for this Word, but it's just as frequently a storm, and, and most of the time, it is a judgment storm. It's, in other words, that God is coming in an ominous, uh, threatening way. So this isn't exactly the, the whirlwind that takes Elijah. This is a different sort of a threatening storm uh, in which he comes to Job and darkens Job's world in a way, and then challenges him and says, who is this that darkens counsel, which is an interesting expression. You, you, you sort of know intuitively what it means. Who is this that's, that's talking about things they don't really understand? Who is this that's saying things uh, that they don't know? And here we begin to see the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Here we begin to see the, the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom knows that it does not know everything. That there, are that there are limits to what creatures can know. Wisdom knows that it doesn't know everything. That there are limits to what creatures can know. Folly, or foolishness, does not respect what I like to call the categorical distinction, the creator-creature distinction. And it's that that Yahweh reasserts in chapters 38 and following. It's really not very complicated. I didn't say it was easy, I just said it's not very complicated. I didn't say it's easy to accept, because ultimately Yahweh doesn't really satisfy our, our quest for understanding. 
of how God can be good, God can be righteous, God can be sovereign, everything can be encompassed in his providence, and it surely is, and yet he's good, and, and yet there is evil. And what happens to Job is really evil. There's, it's not good. I mean, you, we can mitigate it and say, well, ultimately it was good for Job, and ultimately everything turns out well at the end of the book, but if you, if you cheat that way, you've missed the point that the reality of, of suffering is genuine, that people really hurt, and it really has terrible consequences. And you need to face that because you're going to face that. If, you don't, if you're not facing it personally, you will face it as a friend, as an elder, as a teacher, as a pastor, whatever, in whatever capacity you may serve, either now or in the future. You will sit with people whom you know to be good people as the world judges things, as we see things, something like Job, upright, fearing God, not doing the kinds of things. I have no reason to think that Job is lying in chapter 31 when he says, I haven't done all these things. That's basically correct. And God still allowed Satan to afflict him. And so are we going to raise the fist? Are we going to say, and this is the spirit of the age, really, is the raising of the fist. Not uh, to earthly authorities, to be sure, if you just look at Google News. People are raising the fist to authority constantly. And of course, in so doing, the Apostle Paul says they're really raising the fist to God. They're really challenging God, because God appointed all of those authorities. Who is this that darkens counsel by talking about things they don't understand? So you, if, you, if you want to call me to trial, let me ask you a question. Get, all right, I, I'll, I'll accept your challenge. Gird yourself, literally, gird your loins. Right? Dress for action is a, a polite translation. This is a challenge to get ready for war, right? When uh, soldiers, right, they put on battle gear. There's their, you know, their sort of BDUs, their daily uniform, but then there's their battle gear. That's a different uh, uniform, right? They put on plates, armor plates. Cops put on armor plates. Right? They gird themselves every day for battle, they, right? They have to put on a certain kind of uniform, certain kind of equipment, uh, you know, bulletproof armor, Sometimes, and if you're a soldier, helmet. Cops aren't allowed to wear helmets because it makes you afraid. And they, they, and they put firearms on their sides, and mace and batons and handcuffs and all those things that cops and soldiers wear because they're getting ready to go into battle because they have to deal with contingencies. So Yahweh says to Job, Gird yourself up, get ready for battle, but let, but let me ask you a question. You, you tell me. You have, first, you establish that you have grounds. First, that you, and you, and that you have standing. First, you establish that you have standing. And then I'll, I'll answer your questions. If you, can, if you can pass this test, I'll answer your questions. And here's my test for standing. Where were you when I spoke into nothing and made all that was? and is. You, some of you have heard me say this before in class. Oh, that's right. You didn't exist. Shut up. That's wisdom. 
is recognize that, recognizing and acknowledging and admitting that we're not ultimately equal with God, and that we're just dust. We are, as Dr. Horton said to me yesterday, sacred dust, to be sure. I like that. And, but we're, we're dust that God animated. We don't have standing to shake our fist at God. This is a lesson you must accept and you must learn. This is practical Calvinism. And it's great to be young, restless, and reformed, or young, restless, and Augustinian, and, and you know, be thrilled by the doctrines of grace and divine sovereignty, and it, it is. I remember the thrill. I mean, I was young, restless, and Augustinian once. I remember that. But I also remember sitting in a hospital room with a little boy who had cancer, not once, but twice, and now again a third time. He's in his 30s, he's got his third bout of cancer. I watched them kill that boy, all but kill that boy, in a plastic tube, plastic bubble. We had to gear up, we had to gown up to go in, we had to wash up and gown up so that we didn't infect him and, and kill him while they were trying to save his life. What did that boy do to anybody? Aaron has never once shaken his fist at God far as I know, because he's a practical Calvinist. He knows that God is sovereign, and it's not just a theory, it's a reality, and that's why he was able to go through all of the terrible, terrible treatments through which they put him, because he knows in his core that God is good and that God doesn't make mistakes. He knows what Job finally learned in chapter 42. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Right? He repeats Yahweh's question, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful, too transcendent for me, which I did not know. Hear, Yahweh, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you in all of your terrible glory, in that storm theophany, that manifestation of God, in his holiness, his wisdom, his righteousness. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is a man who knows what he is. And he knows implicitly here now by foreshadowing, looking forward, who God is in Jesus Christ. If there was ever anyone who had right to shake his fist at God, who said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and said it in absolute unequivocal righteousness. There's no equivocation. Job was relatively righteous. Maybe Job, maybe it was true of Job in 31, chapter 31, that he hadn't done those things. But it was absolutely true of Jesus. And he submitted to his Father for your sake and for mine. We trust him who trusted his father for us, who obeyed for us. 
and we don't know all the mysterious purposes or maybe any of them that God has. We don't know the outcome from the beginning. It may be that God has decreed that, as it has been for some of our forefathers, that we should be covered with pitch and we should be set on fire for the sake of Jesus. That might be his providence for us. It may be that his providence for us, that Muslim hordes burst into our house, grab us and cut off our heads. That may be. But it was, in, it is in Jesus Christ that we see his face toward us. And we know that whatever his providence is to us, it is good. It is right. It is wisdom. And we despise ourselves and we repent in dust and ashes. That's righteous wisdom. Let's give thanks. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ who did not raise his fist to you, but who accepted the awful consequences of our sin for our sake and for the sake of your name and your glory and your righteousness and your promise that you would always have a people and so you shall, secured by the obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, forgive us when we have dared raise the fist to you. Forgive us when we have challenged you. And now, like Job, we say, we have darkened counsel. We have said what we do not know. But we do know you in Jesus. And we trust you in Jesus. We accept your providence as both good and, and difficult in Jesus. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.